Chapter 35 The Masthead It was during the more pleasant weather that in due rotation with other seamen my first masthead came around. In most American whalemen, the mastheads are manned almost simultaneously with the vessels leaving her port, even though she may have 15,000 miles and more to sail ere reaching her proper cruising ground, and if, after a three, four, or five years' voyage, she is drawing nigh home with anything empty in her, say, an empty vial even, then her mastheads are kept manned to the last, and not till her skysail poles sail in among the spires of the port does she altogether relinquish the hope of capturing one more whale. Now, as the business of standing mastheads, ashore or afloat, is a very ancient and interesting one, let us in some measure expatiate here. I take it that the earliest standards of the masthead were the old Egyptians, because, in my researches, I find none prior to them. For though their progenitors, the builders of Babel, must doubtless, by their tower, have intended to rear the loftiest masthead in all Asia, or Africa either, yet, ere the final truck was put to it, as the great stone mast of theirs may be said to have gone by board, in the dread gale of God's wrath, therefore we cannot give these Babel builders priority over the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were a nation of masthead standers, is an assertion based upon the general belief among archaeologists that the first pyramids were founded for astronomical purposes, a theory singularly supported by the peculiar stair-like formation of all the four sides of these edifices, whereby with prodigious long upliftings of their legs, those old astronomers were wont to mount to the apex and sing out for new stars, even as the lookouts of a modern ship sing out for a sail, or a whale just bearing in sight. In St. Stylites, the famous Christian hermit of old times, who built him a lofty stone pillar in the desert, and spent the whole latter portion of his life on its summit, hoisting his food from the ground with a tackle. In him we have a remarkable instance of a dauntless stander in mastheads, who is not to be driven from his place of fog or frost, rain, hail, or sleet, but valiantly facing everything out to the last, literally died at his post. Of modern standers of mastheads, we have but a lifeless set, mere stone, iron, and bronze men, who, though well being capable of facing out a stiff gale, are still entirely incompetent to the business of singing out upon discovering any strange sight. There is Napoleon, who, upon the top of the column of Vendome, stands with arms folded, some 150 feet in the air, careless now who rules the deck below, whether Louis Philippe, Louis Blanc, or Louis the Devil. Great Washington, too, stands high aloft on his towering masthead in Baltimore, and like one of Hercules' pillars, his column marks that point of human grandeur beyond which few mortals will go. Admiral Nelson, also, on a capsman of gunmetal, stands in his masthead in Trafalgar Square, and everyone most obscured by that London smoke, token is yet given that a hidden hero is there. For where there is smoke must be fire." But neither great Washington, nor Napoleon, nor Nelson will answer a single hail from below, however madly invoked to befriend by their counsels the distracted decks upon which they gaze. However, it may be surmised that their spirits penetrate through the thick haze of the future, and descry what shoals and what rocks must be shunned. It may be unwarrantable to couple in any respect the masthead standards of the land with those of the sea. But that in truth it is not so, is plainly invinced by an item of which Obed Macy, the sole historian of Nantucket, stands accountable. 
The worthy Obed tells us that in the early times of the whale fishery, airships were regularly launched in pursuit of the game. The people of that island erected lofty spars along the seacoast, to which the lookouts ascended by means of nailed cleats, something as fowls go upstairs in a henhouse. A few years ago, this same plan was adopted by bay whalemen of New Zealand, who, upon decrying the game, gave notice to the ready-manned boats nigh the beach. But this custom has now become obsolete. Turn we then to the one proper masthead of that whale ship at sea. The three mastheads are kept manned from sunrise to sunset, the seamen taking their regular turns, as at the helm, and relieving each other every two hours. In the serene weather of the tropics, it is exceedingly pleasant, the masthead. Nay, to a dreamy, meditative man, it is delightful. There you stand, a hundred feet above the silent decks, striding along the deep, as if the mass were gigantic stilts, while beneath you and between your legs, as it were, swim the hugest monsters of the sea, even as ships once sailed between the boots of the famous Colossus of Old Rhodes. There you stand, lost in the infinite series of seas, with nothing ruffled but the waves, the tranced ships indolently rolls, the drowsy trade wind blows, everything resolves you to languor. For the most part, in this tropic whaling life, a sublime uneventfulness invests you. You hear no news, read no gazettes. Extras with startling accounts of commonplace never delude you into unnecessary excitements. You hear of no domestic afflictions, bankrupt securities, fall of stocks, are never troubled with the thought of what shall you have for dinner? For your meals of three years are more snugly stowed in cast, and your bill of fare is immutable. In one of those southern whalemen, on a long three or four years' voyage, as often happens, the sum of various hours you spend at the masthead would amount to several entire months, and it is much to be deplored that the place in which you devote so considerable a portion of your whole term of your natural life should be so sadly destitute of anything approaching a cozy inhabitiveness, or adapted to breed a comfortable localness of feeling, such as pertains to bed, a hammock, a hearse, a sentry box, a pulpit, a coach, or any other of those small, snug contrivances in which men temporarily isolate themselves. Your most usual point of perch is the head of the extra gallant mast, where you stand upon two thin parallel sticks, almost perpendicular to whalemen, called the gallant cross tees, here, tossed about by the sea, the beginner feels about as cozy as he would be standing on a bull's horns. To be sure, in cold weather, you may carry your house aloft with you in the shape of a watch coat, but properly speaking, the thickest watch coat is no more a house than an unclad body. For as the soul is glued inside of its fleshy tabernacle, and cannot freely move about it, nor even move out of it, without running the greater risk of perishing, like an ignorant pilgrim crossing the snowy Alps to winter. So a watch coat is not so much of a house as it is a mere envelope or additional skin encasing you. You cannot put a shelf or chest or drawers in your body, and no more can you make a convenient closet of your watch coat. Concerning all this, it is much to be deplored that the mastheads of a southern whale ship are unprovided with those enviable little tents of pulpits, called crow's nests, in which the lookouts of a Greenland whaler are protected from the inclement weather of the frozen seas. In the fireside narrative of Captain Sleet, entitled A Voyage Among the Icebergs in Quest of the Greenland Whale, and incidentally for the rediscovery of the lost Icelandic colonies of Old Greenland. In the admirable volume, all standards of the masthead are furnished with a charmingly circumstantial account of then-recently-invented crow's nests of the glacier, 
which was the name of Captain Sleet's good craft. He called it the Sleet's Crow's Nest, in honor of himself, he being the original inventor and patentee, and free from all ridiculous false delicacy, and holding that if we call our own children after our own names, we fathers being the original ventures of the patentees, so likewise should we dominate after ourselves any other apparatus we may beget. In shape, the Sleet's Crow's Nest is something like a large tierce or pipe. It is an open above. However, where it is furnished with a movable side screen to keep windward of your head in a hard gale. Being fixed on the summit of the mast, you ascend into it through a little trap hatch in the bottom. On the after side, or side next to the stern of the ship, is a comfortable seat with a locker underneath for umbrellas, comforters, and a coat. In front of the leather rack, in which you keep your speaking trumpet, pipe, telescope, and other nautical conveniences, when Captain Sleet in person stood his masthead in the crow's nest of his, he tells us that he always had a rifle with him, also fixed in the rack, together with a powder flask and shot for the purpose of popping off the stray narwhales or vagrant sea unicorns infesting those waters, for you cannot successfully shoot at them from the deck owing to the resistance of the water, but to shoot down upon them is a very different thing. Now, it was plainly a labor of love for Captain Sleet to describe, as he does, all the little detailed conveniences of his crow's nest. But though he enlarges upon many of these, and though he treats us to a very scientific account of his experiments in the crow's nest, with a small compass he keeps there for the purpose of counteracting the errors resulting from what he calls local attraction of all binnacle magnets, an error ascribed to the horizontal vicinity of the iron and the ship's plank, and the glacier's case, perhaps to having been many broken-down blacksmiths among the crew, I say that though the captain is very discreet and scientific here, yet, for all his learned binnacle divinations, assumeth compass observations and approximate errors, he knows very well, Captain Sleet, that he was not so much immersed in those profound magnetic meditations as to fail being attracted occasionally towards the well-replenished little case bottle, so nicely tucked in on one side of the crow's nest with an easy reach of hand. Though, upon the whole, I greatly admire and even love the brave, the honest, the learned captain, yet I take it very ill of him that he should so utterly ignore that case bottle. Seeing what a faithful friend and comforter it must have been, while with mittened fingers and hooded head he was studying the mathematics aloft there in the bird's nest within three or four perches of the pole. But if we southern whale fishers are not so snugly housed aloft as Captain Sleet and his Greenland men were, yet that disadvantage is greatly counterbalanced by the widely contrasting serenity of those seductive seas in which we south fishers mostly float. For one, I used to lounge upon the rigging very leisurely, resting in the top to have a chat with Quigquag or anyone else off-duty whom I might find there, then, ascending a little way further and throwing a lazy leg over the topsail yard, take a preliminary view of the watery pastures, and so, at last, mount to my ultimate destination. Let me make a clean breast of it here, and frankly admit that I kept but a sorry guard. With the problem of the universe revolving in me, how could I, being left completely to myself at such a thought-engendering altitude, how could I but lightly hold my obligations to observe all whaleship standing orders, keep your weather eye open, and sing out every time? And let me in this place movingly admonish you, ye shipowners of Nantucket. Beware of enlisting your vigilant fisheries, any lad with lean brow and hollow eye, given to unseasonable meditativeness, and, and who offers to ship with Faden instead of Bowditch in his head. 
Beware of such a one, I say. Your whales must be seen before they can be killed. And this sunken-eyed young platinist will tow you ten wakes around the world and never make you one pint of sperm the richer. Nor are these munitions at all unheeded, for nowadays the whale fishery furnitures an asylum of many romantic, melancholy, and absent-minded young men, disgusted with the carking cares of the earth and seeking sentiment in tar and blubber. Child Harold not unfrequently perches himself upon the masthead for some luckless, disappointed whaleship, and in moody phrase ejaculates, Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean roll. Ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over thee in vain. Very often do the captains of such ships take those absent-minded young philosophers to task, braiding them with not feeling sufficient interest in the voyage, half hinting that they were so hopelessly lost to all honorable ambition, as that in their secret souls they would rather not see whales than otherwise. But all in vain, those young Platonists have the notion that their vision is imperfect. They are short-sighted. What use, then, what use, then, to strain the visual nerve? They have left their opera glasses at home. Why, thou monkey, said a harpoon to one of these lads, we've been cruising now hard upon three years, and thou hast not raised a whale yet. Whales are as scarce as hen's teeth whenever thou art up there. Perhaps they were, or perhaps there might have been shoals of them in the far horizon, but lulled into such opium-like listlessness of vacant, unconscious reverie is the absent-minded youth by the blending cadence of waves with thoughts, that at last he loses his identity, takes the mystic ocean at its feet for the visible image of the deep, blue, bottomless soul pervading mankind and nature, and ever-strange, half-seen, gliding, beautiful things that eludes him, Every dimly discovered uprising fin of some undiscernible form seems to him the embodiment of those elusive thoughts that only people the soul by continually flitting through. In this entrenched mood, thy spirit ebbs away to whence it came, becomes diffused through time and space. Pantheistic ashes, forming at least a part of every shore around the globe over. There is no life in thee now except that rocking life imparted by the gently rolling ship, by her borrowed from the sea by the sea, for the inscrutable tides of God. But while this sleep, this dream is on thee, move your foot or hand an inch, slip your hold at all, and your identity comes back in horror. Over Discarcian forces you hover, and perhaps at midday, in the fairest weather, with one half-throttled shriek you drop through that transparent air into the summer sea, no more rise forever. He did well, ye pantheists. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always... Thanks for listening.